Hello and welcome to another episode of Happy Homes. I'm host Nikki Hodgson and today we are going to be talking all about security. Feeling secure at home is essential if we want to feel happy. However, we know that for many people in the UK, these most basic needs are not being met. So, as the UK's housing crisis rolls on and thousands of people don't feel secure at home, just what do we need to feel a sense of security and how do we go about getting it? Well, with me today to talk about just that are Ruth Ehrlich of Shelter and Jonathan Schiffers, Senior Area Manager for Housing at the Greater London Authority. Ruth, Jonathan, thank you for speaking to me today. So, Ruth, what are the basic decent living conditions we all need at home and how well does most UK housing perform? So there are lots of things that come into decent living conditions. What we say at Shelter is that everyone has a right to a safe, secure and affordable place to call home. So it needs to be all of those things. It needs to be um, reasonably priced relative to your income. It needs to have decent conditions and you need to be able to stay in it for as long as you need to. In terms of the conditions... There is kind of a varying quality of stock across the country. But in terms of private rented housing, there is actually quite a shocking level of disrepair. So 25% of private rented homes um, are classed as non-decent. So they don't meet like the decent home standard where you have to have, has to be in a reasonable state of repair, has to meet minimum size standards. So that's one in four homes. And it's over 650,000 private rented properties that have a category one hazard, which is something that can put your health at risk, basically. That compares to 13% um, in the social rented sector and 20% in owner occupied. So it's a pretty mixed picture. And we can go on to talk a bit more about what security means to make it a decent living condition, really. So, Jonathan, we know that 2.5 million people in the UK live in so-called hidden households. What are hidden households and why does living in one affect your feeling of security? Well, I guess when we think about homelessness, we typically think about rough sleepers who are individuals who we tend to see on the street, making their home on the street, very unfortunately. And really, there are all kinds of situations that can lead someone to not have a secure home that they call their own. So many people, in fact, most people who are in a, in a situation where they get kicked out of a home or they can't afford a home that they need and, and want for their, for their family, for the people they live with, they will find a way of making it work without resorting to rough sleeping. And one of the main ways that people make it work, and we've probably all had maybe a few weeks of our lives where we've had to do this, is we go on someone's sofa or we go into a spare bedroom at our mum's house or our aunt's house. Um, but really, when that becomes more than just a very temporary measure, those households are homeless households. They don't have a house or a home to call their own, <clears throat> but they're often not picked up in the data and the statistics. They're often not picked up by um, local uh, housing authorities that take care and are responsible for our homeless households because they're hidden. They're, you know, effectively, they've just been folded into um, another household and, uh, and, and, and really those people are, are in urgent need of, of good housing, of decent housing, of secure housing. Um, but we often just, they're invisible. Um, they, they're, they're not visible in statistics and they're really also a challenge for policymakers to try and um, ensure that our housing system offers something sustainable, something um, decent for, for all households who need, who need a home. Yeah. And so what kinds of options are there for people or what support is there for people if they're living in a so-called hidden household? And maybe they don't even know it themselves, because I think it's not a phrase that people would use casually, you know, amongst friends, is it? Sure. It's more of a policymaker's um, lingo, uh, hidden households. But um, what options are there available to a hidden household? Well, 
your local authority, your local council is a, a housing authority that has a responsibility that if you go to them and you say, I have a housing need, they have a responsibility, a legal duty to assess your need. And then they would put you into a system by which they would try and offer you something to respond to your need. Now, the challenge we have in this country is that after decades and decades of having effectively too much need, well, lots of need that we can't address or we've chosen not to invest in addressing, um, that list for housing is very long. So most people who go on it will wait years before they are offered um, a either a home in a, in a council-owned house or even uh, perhaps temporary accommodation. It is based on on a kind of fair and transparent assessment of need, but it's the, it's the sad case that all but, you know, the most kind of desperate and the most needy households, so households where, you know, there's a real risk of rough sleeping, there might be domestic abuse and domestic violence in, in, the, in the home that they're coming from, there might be children in the home, there might be people with special needs and disabilities. Of course, it's right that those households are housed first. Um, hidden households who actually, they might not be in immediate danger by virtue of you know living with their parents or living with friends crashing on the sofa etc they still have a housing need but unfortunately in our current system it will take years if not you know a decade before their need gets addressed by the amount of council housing social housing housing association housing that we have available to to help people who can't meet their own needs in the market which we know is a really challenging market for, for many people. Yeah. So Ruth, I just wanted to come back to this idea of basic, decent living conditions. What is the effect of too many people living in the same building? I mean, it can be catastrophic for health outcomes and general well-being, especially for children. So our shelter services, which we operate across the country, are regularly helping people who are living in really overcrowded, private rented or social rented homes, which obviously there's no space to do your homework. If you're a teenager, you might be sharing a bedroom with your younger siblings and have no privacy. We see children who have no space to crawl around, which is can have a massive impact on their development. Not to mention that it can also cause really bad conditions in the property. So if somewhere has mould or damp and there's a family living in it and the family is too big for that property, then it's really going to exacerbate those conditions and have an impact on their health. It's important to remember that lots of people who, particularly families who are in really unsuitable accommodation, they can apply to the local authority, as Jonathan was saying, for homelessness assistance. And they might be moved into temporary accommodation, which is really of varying quality. There are 135,000 children growing up in temporary accommodation right now. Some of these kids are living in hostels. They shouldn't be there for very long, but they can be there and living in properties that were converted from old office buildings. So you see awful, awful sites that used to be a massive office block and now houses hundreds and hundreds of of families in tiny rooms. And it's just no way for children to grow up. And as Jonathan says, it's just a product of not having invested in social housing, um, having an overheated, overpriced private rented market, and obviously home ownership just far out of reach for most people. Yeah. So home ownership is an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's obviously decreasing. Yeah. The long term trend over the last 30 years or so would be that we we kind of peaked as a nation of homeowners in the late 80s in London and perhaps in the late 90s in the rest of the country. So, yeah, home ownership is, is on a slow and quite steady decline as a proportion of how people pay for their housing. And we found from the Resi research that owning your own home 
which at the minute is about 17.7 million households, it doesn't automatically mean you'll feel more secure where you live. So we also found that 48% of the people we surveyed said there was always something to worry about in terms of their home and there was a lot of anxiety attached to it. What are some of the things that can decrease your feeling of security even when you own your own home? A sense of security is, is I think, probably the most fundamental thing about what it means to feel at home. Like that feeling when you kind of twist the key, walk in, and you know, you're not in the outside world, you're not in the public world, you're in your own private space and you have control over that space. And for many people, I think almost universally, we would aspire to having that sense, that emotional feeling when we walk through the front door of our home. In the long term, you know, you, that, that builds up and you get more and more secure the more time you spend somewhere. So you get more familiar with it. Um, I think you can be happier by virtue of being comforted by the surroundings that you've made and that you've um, kind of affected, you've built, you've designed, you've decorated, you've had memories there. Now, then there's a whole financial relationship to our home. How do we, how do we pay for that home that we walk through the door of? For those of us who are homeowners, we have a really strong sense that that is a highly secure, almost indestructible. It's a, it's a relationship that can't be altered by anyone. We have a right to be there and almost no one except for perhaps the courts in the most um, extreme circumstances of, of repossession of a, of a mortgaged property would be able to take those keys from us. Contrast that with the feeling of security that one would get and I've had this experience, most of us would have had in this country at some point in their lives, of being a tenant and having a tenancy agreement, which you signed up for. It might give you six months or a year before there's a kind of right of the landlord or a right of the tenant to to break that and change that, often at one month's notice. And really, although you want that sense every day of walking into a place that feels your own, so you have a sense, an emotional sense of ownership, we should be able to achieve that emotional sense of ownership whatever our financial relationship to the home is, whether we own it as a, a financial investment, whether we own it as something we inherited, or whether we rent it from a council, rent it from a housing association, rent it privately. At the moment, millions of people who rent privately aren't offered a financial relationship with their home that gives them much security beyond really the next month, or maybe if they're lucky, the next three months. And we know that that is hugely disruptive to our psychological well-being, feeling like what we value, what we trust in every day could be kind of taken away from us without much say or any say in it, without much choice. And then you think about things like, um, you know, the, the impact of a child needing to move school during the middle of an academic year is huge. It's proven that that's a bad impact on educational outcomes. But we've got a housing system that allows households to live, even if they're relatively affluent households, if they're renting privately, um, they may be in a position where at, at very short notice, they have to move their life, find a new place to live. And that might mean uprooting children who have no say in the matter and all kinds of, of, of other impacts. Yes, absolutely. And this is absolutely what we found at Resi from the Happy Homes research. Ruth, given that so many people do rent, let's talk a bit more specifically about how you can feel safe when you do rent. Um, what, for example, is it vital to have on a rental agreement? So when you 
move into a new property, you will probably be given some kind of tenancy agreement. And it, it really matters what is on that tenancy agreement. But it's also more important to remember that you already have a set of rights that are written in law. So regardless of what your landlord says, you have rights that they can't really write over. So for example, if you move into your own independent flat and your landlord doesn't live in the property with you or doesn't live in the flat upstairs, then you are an assured shorthold tenant and there is nothing that the landlord can do or say that changes that. So they might try and issue with you with like a license agreement, which gives you fewer rights. But what is on the paper doesn't trump your actual physical situation. So any tenant already has some rights written in law. And similarly, a landlord has rights depending on what your situation is as well. But obviously, it's really important to make sure, firstly, that you're happy with everything in your tenancy agreement, that there are any specifics about any kind of appliances that were left in the property when you moved in. So whose responsibility is it to repair those? Because that kind of thing can be up for discretion. And it's also really important to check that the tenancy agreement has been updated in light of recent legal changes. So um, the Tenant Fees Act, for example, has banned um, your landlord or estate agent um, charging you excess money for kind of silly things or just a massive deposit, for example. So there's now a cap on how much deposit you have to pay. If you have any questions about your tenancy agreement and you're not sure always um, check the shelter website for advice. There's loads of advice on there about what you should look out for. But as I say, it's more important what your situation is rather than what's written down. Yeah. And I think that's something people don't consider, isn't it? Because certainly I've rented for years and it never occurred to me that, you know, there were laws beyond the piece of paper that I had that could protect me. Certainly when I've had some dodgy landlords and I have, I guess we've all have, we've lived in London or anywhere actually. Jonathan, if you've got a difficult landlord, what can you do? So, My advice would be, in the first instance, check what your tenancy agreement says about how disputes are potentially resolved, just so you know that if it was to be escalated, that's how it should be escalated. I mean, it's worth saying there are lots of tenants and landlords who have good relationships, and it's probably a credit to them that on both sides they've put in some basic kind of interpersonal work to make those relationships strong, open, transparent, honest. So, you know, if you've got a small problem, you know, don't hide it, raise it early, I would say is kind of basic advice for how to how to deal with someone that you've got this, you know, really important relationship with recognizing it's important for you because it's your home. It's probably important for them too, because it's their business, you know, they might view it as their pension, their their asset, their their pride and joy. So ideally you've got you've you've got a decent working relationship as two people involved in 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 a in a deal to occupy the home. And, and you could do it on a very human level and just, you know, bring things up early. I know, however, that many properties are managed by, you know, a managing agent and then there's someone kind of in between. And unfortunately, we also know that there are some really unscrupulous managing agents and unscrupulous landlords. So, for example, there was a, a piece of work done by um, Manchester Council where they did some mystery shopper work. They pretended to be a landlord looking for a managing agent to manage their properties and the stuff they heard from the managing agents, oh, you know, don't worry about complaints. We never respond to any emails. You know, don't worry about making you pay out for repairs. We, we've, we've never had to pay out for a repair in years. So when you actually hear it, the kind of the, some of the dirty secrets of that industry, it's pretty shocking stuff. And it makes people who've been a tenant almost, you almost get a sense, right, it's not just me. I am being often fobbed off. In London, what the mayor's done is established the rogue landlord checker. 
So I'd encourage anyone in London to have a look at our website where we've tried to aggregate some of the available information about, for example, landlords who've been served a court notice previously for breaking the law. And we are trying to build a database so that tenants can make more informed choices about who they're renting from. They can know a bit about the organisation, the individuals and the business that they're um, renting from. But yeah, my advice would be, you know, look in the look in the tenancy agreement to see how it imagines that um, disputes would be resolved. And then there are some, thankfully to organisations like Shelter, some great resources, both online and, and over the phone from the likes of Shelter and Citizens Advice Bureau that can help you escalate disputes um, and hopefully um, get you know, an outcome that doesn't cost you time or, or money or, or anguish and end up in court. Most disputes can be resolved before they get that far. And, and the experts at Shelter and Citizens Advice can, can definitely point you in a way that can help you do that before it gets to that point. Okay, that's good advice. So Ruth, in Shelter's Living Home Standard, you found that it's security over your tenure that increases your happiness at home. And that was also supported by our findings at Resi. What minimum length of rental contract do you need to feel secure do you think and do we have it right now we definitely don't have it right now um it's a topical question because we are moving in the right direction currently if you are a private renter in the uk you're kind of entitled to either a six month contract or maybe a bit longer if you've negotiated that with your landlord or it's what your landlord has offered you and that means that you can't be evicted in that time unless you do something wrong and breach the contract. But at the end of that period, you're basically just at the mercy of the kind of external landscape and whatever your landlord wants to do because of this Section 21 law that means that your landlord can serve you with a no-fault eviction notice at any point for no reason. So even if you have paid your rent in time, been a really great tenant, if you've got kids at the local school, under current law, you can just be served a notice and given two months to leave, which is obviously just so disruptive for people and really contributes to this sense of insecurity. It also, and we see this through our services and also through research that we carry out, that it really puts people off trying to resolve disputes with their landlord because it contributes to this general sense of insecurity that oh, there's a problem, but I would rather just deal with the problem myself or put up with it rather than risk being served a no-fault eviction notice and have to take my kid out of school and this is the only relatively affordable property in the area and I don't know where I'm going to go if I have to leave. So our research found that one in five renters didn't complain about disrepair in their property for fear of being served an eviction notice, which is terrible because it means that not only are you living in constant fear of being evicted, but you're also not kind of enforcing the other rights that you have in your property. But happily, the government has recognised that um, the current situation is untenable and that the relationship between landlords and tenants is currently really imbalanced and they've committed to getting rid of section 21 for good which is great and we really want that legislation to be brought forward obviously the current situation has made that all a bit more difficult but we are hoping to see some legislation in the coming months and we want to see open-ended tenancies where you can stay in your property for as long as you want and as long as you need to Your landlord can evict you if they have a genuine reason um, or if you have breached your tenancy agreement. Which sounds completely reasonable. (laughs) Yeah, it'd be great. (laughs) I think it's unbelievable when you think of the other areas of our life, like if you sign up for a mobile phone or you sign up for broadband at home 
And the company would say, well, look, do you want a one-year contract or actually maybe you want a two-year contract where you're locked in and you might get a slightly different price, but, you know, you know, you don't have to think about it again and, you know, you've got this deal. And actually even just having a range of tenancy options on the table for tenants that they could choose whether they wanted an assured shorthold tenancy or something different, open-ended or a fixed term that was longer. We don't even have that. And I wouldn't underestimate how much we've just got an industry that really just works on defaults. It's just, you know, everyone gets the same thing. You know, the mortgage broker says, if you're, this is buy to let, it has to be an assured shorthold tenancy. So it has to be the managing agent. You know, they've got the, the file in there on their computer. It's the, ten, it's the default template agreement and it just gets pinged out to everyone. And that's why you do need to um, check that if you're, if you've got a tenancy agreement, it's up to date. Um, but we've just, we just haven't got the professionalism that you might have in other really important industries like telecoms or motor, you know, all kinds of other parts of our economy have got a much more sophisticated way of, of dealing with these challenges and serving customers. Well, we've got a relatively unprofessionalized private rented sector in this country. Completely. And it's completely wild because there is no other consumer market that is so unregulated. Private renters spend so much money on rent. So it's 40% of um, renters' income that goes on rent, over 40%. And that goes up, I think, to 50%-ish in London. And yet they have no rights. Like You wouldn't buy a car and not be able to challenge if it didn't work or something. And it's just so well overdue that there's some reform of the of the PRS because it's just not fit for purpose at the moment. It does feel like the conversation is changing though, doesn't it? And I certainly see many more articles online and kind of the general media coverage is sort of shifting. So renters are pushing back, aren't they? I think so. And I think as well, they are um, an increasingly politically salient group. So it used to be that young people would rent privately and then they would move into home ownership. Whereas now you see more and more um, people kind of in middle age and later life living in the private rented sector and everyone votes, everyone can vote. And I think politicians begin to realise that they need to have an offer for people who probably won't be able to move into home ownership and might be waiting, as Jonathan says, like decades for a social home if they're lucky. So Jonathan, I just wanted to ask you, we found out something really counterintuitive from the Happy Homes report was that that people with secure lifetime tenancies for their council or housing association housing were actually happier at home than those who didn't have a mortgage. Why is that, do you think? I think this goes to a kind of broader societal discussion about what as a society we think of as social housing. Who, What's it for? Who does it serve? Who lives there? And how do they feel about living there? I own my flat, but it's on a council estate. It's an estate built by Southwark in 1978. And so, you know, without going on a long story about the history of, of council housing, um, There are lots of good things about council housing. And one of them is that when you get a rental agreement from the council, it tends to be a secure tenancy that gives you a right to stay in that home indefinitely, unless you break, you know, specific terms like, you know, you smash the place up or or you create a lot of nuisance. Um, and, And also your rent is fixed at a level that is regulated and set by the government. It's controlled. It won't rise dramatically. It will rise usually in, in accordance with inflation. Within the group of people who live in, in, in council housing and in social housing, some people also get um, some financial assistance from the government to pay for their rent. That's the same as in the private rented sector, where some people who are in the private rented sector would get some assistance through the welfare system, through what used to be housing benefit or universal credit. But yeah, council housing, council homes, council estates, which are part of council housing, but not all of council housing, you know, these are 
are normal communities. These are happy places to live where people are really happy bringing up their kids. And compared to the alternative for someone on a low income, which is probably renting privately or renting from the council, because home ownership right now might be, it's likely to be out of reach. You know, you might be better off in, in, in the, in the council sector, in the social housing sector, because as I say, your rent would be, um, the increases would be controlled by inflation. And there's also, you know, we've got all councils and all housing associations are professional landlords in the sense that they have paid staff, they have standards for how they do repairs, they have investment into upgrading homes on a regular basis. And it's not the best. So it's not, you know, it's not what you'd get in a Park Avenue Manhattan apartment building, but there's a basic level of decency, which is actually higher than exists in the private rented sector. So for someone on a low income, it's a good deal and it's a good place to be. The challenge is that we don't have enough social homes so that we can allocate them to people who've got an identified housing need. And there are millions of people who are waiting to access one. Ruth, why do you think there is still such a stigma about social housing? So the kind of shrinking housing stock has led to a decline in social housing that means that it is for the people who are at the sharpest end of the housing emergency. So like 30% of people who live in social housing have experienced homelessness. There's very little um, stock available. And where kind of when social housing was booming, it was for a real cross-section of society. There was a real pride that came with living in social housing. It was about community. It was affordable. You could, it was a good place to kind of get on and, um, you know, achieve anything that you wanted to achieve. And because there has been so little investment, so much has been sold off and not replaced. It means that it's really for people who um, are having a really, really difficult, often having a really, really difficult time. And I think this also ties in with stigma um, generally about people claiming benefits. And we see this in the private rented sector as well. So people who are claiming local housing allowance, which um, is the kind of housing benefit for private renters, they have massive barriers in accessing the market at all. So we know that 40% of land, private landlords have an outright bar on letting to people who are in receipt of benefits. So that's 40% of private landlords and a further 20% prefer not to let to people in receipt of benefits. And this is, we believe that this practice in itself is discriminatory. Um, it's indirect discrimination because the people who are most likely to be claiming benefits are single mothers and people with disabilities. Um, but it's all part of the same problem of this just like, you know, stigma and misunderstanding and disdain for people who um, are on lower incomes. Obviously, things like, you know, programs like Benefit Street don't help, um, things that stigmatise people on low incomes. But it's all part of the same problem. And if we had investment in stock and made sure that social housing was available for people across society, not just for those in the greatest need, but for everyone, then that stigma would probably go away. Mm. And I wonder as well, with what has happened in recent months, you know, the money that lots of people have accepted from the government, they've been a form of, you know, furlough payment has been a form of benefit in many ways, hasn't it? Uh, and some of the kind of emergency payments, people that are self-employed, I'm wondering if something is going to shift about perceptions because people have had to accept help. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see if that happens. Jonathan, what does affordable housing look like in 2020? So affordable housing, the, the phrase affordable housing has become a bit of a political hot potato. I think it's a phrase that's been, um, in my personal view, kind of used and, and slightly abused. So there isn't, I think, in the public, a kind of good understanding of what the 
kind of formal policy legal definition of affordable housing is. So technically, from government's point of view, affordable housing means all the housing in this country that is offered at below market rates. So that includes the housing that we're most familiar with, like council housing and other social housing from housing associations. But it also includes uh, housing that isn't at those kind of fixed low social rents and council set rents. It might include what's called discount market rent, which sometimes can come in as high as 80% of the local market rent. It also includes um, shared ownership, which people are more and more familiar with because it's a growing and quite popular option where you buy kind of a quarter or maybe 40% of a home and you get a mortgage on that bit and then you pay rent on the rest of it that you don't own. So those are all examples of affordable housing in a kind of policy speak way. But then I think, you know, we, we, we all need somewhere to live. And so we've all got a sense of like what is and isn't really affordable. When we use the phrase affordable housing as the public sector and from government, I think we should mean homes that are genuinely affordable, which means they're within the reach of um, someone's income. They don't take up a disproportionate amount of income. So um, the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, is really keen on using the phrase genuinely affordable homes. And that covers social rent homes where the rents are controlled and set at a level that will always be um, affordable to the vast majority, including some contributions sometimes where appropriate from from government welfare um, and, and other benefits. Um, but that would exclude um, things like discount market rent, which is 80% of market rent. Um, so although discount market rent meets the government's definition of affordable housing, it doesn't kind of pass the common sense test. So we would say at the, at the Greater London Authority, it's not genuinely affordable housing. I think the, globally, the, the, the standard is really if, if you're spending more than 30% or a third of your income every month on your housing costs, that's unaffordable. It's unsustainable. It doesn't often leave enough money to save, to take care of your uh, family or household's needs and other budget items, you know, bills, uh, expenses, etc. Yeah, absolutely. So just to end, really, if you're concerned about your security at home, Ruth, where can people go for help? So obviously, Shelter is here to answer any kind of queries or concerns that people have about their housing situation. We have loads of advice online. We also have a web chat and a phone line. So we always encourage people um, to reach out and get some advice from us or from a community um, resource if there's one around. The most important thing is just if you're worried about your housing, don't ignore it. Don't bury your head in the sand. There is help out there and advice to help keep you safe and secure in your home or help find you a safe and secure home. Um, so please just address the situation and um, we can make it better. Wonderful. Jonathan, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, from my experience of, of, of being involved in various kind of research projects around housing and the built environment, I think one of the key things is is to pay attention to how much it matters, what your home situation is, and try and identify that if there's things that are uncomfortable or or making you unhappy or sources of anxiety, to really, you know, talk to people about what, what might be causing those, because it might be that it's a design thing that you can change. It might be actually to do with your neighbours. It might be that you're not really paying attention to what the source of anxiety is. It might be to do with the neighbourhood and you, you know, you might like your home, but where it's located isn't, isn't best for your needs. And then when I think you do that kind of thinking, that kind of mapping out, I think we then realise how the whole 
obsession with home ownership that we have as a country is just one part of the puzzle. And equally, the, the challenges we have in our private rented sector do potentially come down to the limited uh, rights and contractual options that are presented to us. So I guess when it comes to home security, you know, your financial relationship to the home is just one thing. It can be a huge source of anxiety, but it's probably not the whole story. And there are lots of, um, you know, homeowners who look financially secure, but maybe don't feel like that's a secure home for them because of um, the way the home functions. And likewise, you know, you can have a very long, happy and prosperous life in the private rented sector, but we should give ourselves the regulatory tools and the policy tools so that, um, that we at least give people more options that some of that security is baked into their agreements and their financial relationships. That's brilliant, guys. You've covered so much stuff for me today and answered so many questions. So, Ruth, Jonathan, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Nikki. So if you want to make sure you feel secure at home, do recognise if you live in a hidden household and go to your local housing authority for help, but be prepared you may be waiting some time. Do go through your tenancy agreement with a fine-tooth comb, but remember, you have legal rights whatever's written on it. Remember... You don't need to own your own home to feel safe and secure in where you live. Social housing provides great stability for thousands of people, as does private rented accommodation. And finally, if you're having housing problems, do seek out advice from Shelter. They're there to help. And if you're still not sure how happy your home is, take the Resi test. That's over at resi.co.uk underscore happy homes. Bye for now.